Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Cass, dress listeners, it has been a minute since all of us have been together. Cass, you, of course, had a baby. How is baby Leo doing? (laughs) Leo is doing great. He's like two and a half months right now. And you and I were actually just joking that dress listeners used to be hearing our dogs in the background. And now you'll be hearing possibly babies crying in the background. So... (laughs) And the dogs too. They're yes, still yes. they're still in the mix. And dogs, yeah. exactly. So thus is the reality of a podcaster recording at home. But no, he's mm-hmm. really good. He's getting chubby and cuter by the day. Yeah. And I'm very much looking forward to meeting him, which is gonna be in a few weeks, I think, because I'm coming to meet you at the Santa Fe Indian Market Yay. in August. And this year the Indian Market is celebrating its 100th anniversary. So stay tuned for lots more on that, dress listeners. We will, of course, be discussing the always fabulous fashion show, which showcases the work of contemporary Indigenous designers. So more on that very, very soon. Yes, yes, yes. And Cash, you were out on maternity leave for a bit, and then I took a little bit of a break once you returned. And that makes this our very first episode. We were all back at this together, and I am so appreciative and happy about that. Yes, welcome back and welcome to this episode, Dress Listeners. And while we were both away for a bit, we took the opportunity to re-air some of our favorite episodes from the past as Dress Classic episodes. April, it's crazy, but officially we have now more than, you know, 350 episodes produced, written, recorded. There are so many in our back catalog to choose from, and that includes today's episode, which is one of our earliest, one of the very first episodes we ever recorded. Mm-hmm. This is straight from season one. I think it was something like episode 11 or episode 12. And let's just say that, well, at the beginning of our tenure as podcast hosts, we were perhaps not the most seasoned. <laughs> baby <laughs> Which podcasters. is why, yeah, baby, just baby. I always joke that they just, they pushed us into the deep end of the pool and were like, swim. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we have actually done a little bit of a revamp on this episode, and we want to push it out into the world again because we know that a lot of our current listeners have not traveled back that far in our catalog yet. And this is a really important episode, not only because Elsa Caparelli is one of my all-time favorite designers, but it's very important at this precise moment in time. And Cass, do you want to tell everyone why that is? Absolutely. And I mean, Elsa Scaparelli is one of the most important and exciting designers in the history of fashion, period. Mm-hmm. So that's one reason. But right now, currently on view at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs in Paris, is the exhibition Shocking the Surrealist World of Elsa Scaparelli. And that runs through January 22nd of next year. So this is actually probably the largest retrospective of her work to date. It includes 212 works by Elsa herself and an additional 300 165 works, quote, designed in honor of Scaparelli by fashion icons, including Yves Saint Laurent, Azadine Alaya, Jean Galliano, and Christian Lacroix, end quote, as well as the current artistic director of the House of Scaparelli, Daniel Roseberry. Not to mention artworks by many of Scaparelli's collaborators, many of whom were working in the surrealist genre during the early 20th century, including Salvador Dali, Man Ray, and Jean Cocteau. And Cass, I'm going to full on go on the record here and say that, in my opinion, this promises to be one of the most important fashion exhibitions of the 2020s. And you better believe that I'm going to move heaven and earth to get to Paris by the end of the year to see it. So... <laughs> Who is coming with me? <laughs> oh, I'm sure a lot of people will take up that invitation. Perhaps you and I will too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and given the importance and timely nature of this exhibition, we are not only reissuing our past episode on Scaparelli, we are actually re-recording it. So we both agree that as hosts, we've grown a lot over the past few years. So without further ado, we bring you the Redux edition of Trust, Shocking Elsa Scaparelli. 
Yes. And just the same as I said this the first time we did this, one of my all-time favorite compliments that anyone has ever given me still to this day was when I was in grad school. And we had a lecture about Scaparelli in class. And one of my fellow classmates remarked that if I, April, had been a socialite in the 1930s and the 1940s, that I absolutely would have been a Scaparelli client. And (laughs) she was definitely right. I would have. (gasps) And one of those reasons is people always ask me, who's your favorite designer? I usually respond with, well, do I just have to pick one? And if I did have to pick just one, it would definitely be Scaparelli. Oh, hands down. I mean, she's just phenomenal. And she has been called, quote, a carpenter of clothes. And her unique style has been dubbed hard chic in a way that sometimes feels at odds with itself. So one moment, it's wonderfully whimsical. The next moment, it's intoxicatingly severe. But for April and I, the magic really happens when she managed to blend the two, something she did incredibly well. So add a sprinkle of her collaborations with the Surrealists, and this tallies up to pure fashion genius. And Scaparelli's path into the fashion world was not as direct as many of the designers who we have discussed on the show. Many early 20th century designers began working in the fashion trades as apprentices during their teen years or even kind of tween years. And Scaparelli did not begin exploring fashion design as a profession until her late 30s. So she was in her late 30s. And she had a bit of wandering around the globe to do before she found this to be her true calling in life. So just who was Elsa Scaparelli? Well, she was born on September 10th at the Palazzo Corsini in Rome. What year she was born, however, is the matter of some debate. Her biographer, Dillis Blum, places the year at 1890, and Scaparelli's obituary in the New York Times concurs. However, her granddaughter, a former model, Marissa Berenson, assigns the year at 1895, while her obituary in Women's Wear Dailies is 1896. In the end, however, we were able to confirm via a copy of her birth certificate that the correct date is indeed 1890. Yes. I mean, who doesn't want to shave off five years or so from their age? (laughs) It happens frequently. Elsa was born into an upper-class family of academics and intellectuals. Her father was the head director of the Palazzo Corsini's library and a scholar specializing in Arabic and Islamic linguistics and literature. Her uncle, Giovanni Scaparelli, remains famous as the astronomer who discovered the canals on the moon, which in turn sparked other speculations that life might exist on the lunar surface. And also, a crater on Mars is actually named after her uncle. Her cousin, Ernesto, was a well-known Egyptologist who made discoveries of several very important tombs. So, Cass, there were some majorly big brains in this family. Absolutely. And Elsa, of course, had the chops to match them, which is one of the reasons we love her so much. On her mother's side, she descended from Italian aristocracy. But Elsa's relationship with her mother, Maria Luisa, was somewhat contentious due to the fact that her mother really favored her older sister, Beatrice, who's nicknamed Biche. And we aren't talking secret favorites here. Maria Luisa continuously praised Biche's beauty and harped on Elsa that she was ugly, which is horrible. And as one could imagine, this had a tremendous effect on the young Elsa. She actually was a difficult child, but she was dreamy. And she had this admittedly rich fantasy life that she, you know, would kind of retreat into. And in her autobiography, Shocking Life, she wrote about innocently thinking of ways to force herself to become beautiful. She wrote, quote, To have a face covered with flowers like a heavenly garden would indeed be a wonderful thing. And if she could make flowers sprout out all over her face, she would be the only woman of her kind in the whole world. Nasturtiums, daisies, morning glories, all in full bloom. With some difficulty, she obtained seeds from the gardener, and these she planted in her throat, ears, and mouth. She felt they ought to grow faster on her warm body than the soil outside. Thus, she sat waiting for the result, end quote. And keep in mind this rather bittersweet anecdote of burgeoning self-awareness because it really illustrates young Scaparelli's natural predilection later on in life to these sort of awe-inspiring and non-sequitur aesthetics of the Surrealist movement with which she is later so closely identified. Yeah, and our listeners may have noticed something a little odd in this fantastic quote that April just read. And that is that the quote is directly from Scaparelli herself, who had a tendency to write about herself in the third person. This is, of course, what was from her autobiography, other parts of which 
she wrote in first person. So this is just one example of her inherently contradictory nature, which she herself was aware of. She describes herself as unpredictable, but disarmingly simple, profoundly lazy, but a furious worker. She calls herself out as being both generous and mean and ultimately declared her life an everlasting question mark. Marissa Berenson paints a picture of her grandmother as someone who remained curiously aloof throughout her life. While Scaparelli was clearly devoted to her family, it seems she viewed herself as isolated from others from a very young age, and she even asked those closest to her to call her Scap. And Scap was a sort of alter ego that, in her words, she, quote, had only seen in the mirror, some kind of fifth dimension, end quote. So it seems she felt she was a sort of enigma even to herself. And we're we're digressing a little bit, Cass, but do you want to fill us in a little bit more on her child? Because as we already referenced, she was supposedly difficult. Yeah, she was actually probably really infuriating as a kid. She was <laughs> extremely smart, but really disliked in school because she was always pulling pranks to try to get kicked out. Other times she was messing with adults. So she tells this story of hiding underneath the table during one of her parents' dinner parties and releasing a box of fleas to torment the guests. Her parents sent her away for a bit to a convent to try to tame her willful spirit. And she really credits her stubbornness to the fact that she was given goat milk as an infant after her wet nurse was fired for being a drunkard. So there's that. Yep. We're talking like turn of the 20th century here. Like wet nurse is still a thing. But by Elsa's 20s, her early 20s or so, she was towing the quote-unquote proper line a little bit better. She was studying philosophy at university. But in 1911, she dropped a bombshell on her rather conservative family when she published a volume of sensuous poetry called Arethusa. She had kept her writing secret from her family, but had shared it with a cousin who was an art dealer. And her cousin thought it was so smashing that he arranged for it to be published. So Elsa was now disgraced in her family's eyes, and when this happened, they started to begin pressuring her to accept a marriage proposal from a Russian man who she did not love. Yeah, and in order to defuse this situation, she jumped on an opportunity to move to London to become a nanny to one of her sister's friends. And it was there in 1914, so she would have been about 24, that she attended a lecture given by Wilhelm Went de Curler, a handsome, charismatic Theosophist, which I had no idea what that was before this episode, but it's it's like a philosopher mystic of sorts. Mm-hmm. And the study of theosophy was very trendy at the time, especially with intellectuals and artistic types. So there were a lot of more avant-garde thinkers who are followers of theosophy. Yeah, and some of them were quite wealthy, actually. And this theosophy lecture ended up being quite a critical juncture in Elsa's life. Immediately following the talk, Scaparelli and Went de Curler engaged in a passionate discussion and probably a passionate night together because she spent the night with him and they were married in a civil ceremony within 24 hours. So, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get away from her family would be my guess. <laughs> Marriage is an easy way to do that. And we would like to tell you that this had a fairy tale ending, but but alas, it did not. No, this guy was a serious piece of work. <laughs> yeah, that's one word for him. <laughs> After a brief period living in France, the couple relocated to New York City in 1916, which of course is in the middle of World War One. perhaps one of the reasons they moved on. But on this passage over via ship, Scaparelli became friends with fellow passenger Gabrielle Pacabia, the wife of the Dada artist Francis Pacabia. And Gabby had actually proved to be a really important figure in Scaparelli's destiny, as we will learn in a bit. Once in New York, Scaparelli and her husband fell in with a smart set, including an avant-garde group of artists that included some people you may have heard of dress listeners, Man Ray, Edward Steichen, and one Marcel Duchamp. And of course, there was the Picabias as well. Yes. And Went to Curler proved to be an all-around ne'er-do-well, spending way more time partying and womanizing than looking for lecture opportunities or even a job. He would disappear for long periods of time, and when he was present, he was purportedly both mentally and physically abusive to his wife. And the couple had been living off Elsa's dowry, which was getting perilously low. And during long periods of separation from her husband, Scaparelli was forced to take up a whole host of odd jobs, including watching the ticker tape on Wall Street and flipping thrift store finds for a profit. And she even worked as an extra on an early film in the 1910s, thanks to her friend Edward Steichen. 
Her situation became all the more desperate when in 1920, she gave birth to a daughter with DeCurler, who she officially named Maria Luisa after her mother. But from the very beginning, from her birth, her daughter was nicknamed Gogo. And on the day of her daughter's birth, Scaparelli had no clue where her husband was. It was around this time that he was conducting an affair with the modern dancer Isadora Duncan. And this was really the last straw it took for Scaparelli to leave him for good after six years of neglect and abuse. And while she left her daughter, Gogo's birth was a complication in an already difficult situation. I mean, Scaparelli needed to work now to support both of them. And she made the difficult decision to place Gogo in the care of a professional nurse in Connecticut while she remained in New York. And of this time, Scap says that, quote, I had no other interest but Gogo. And that after her rent, quote, the little money I had left went to the nurse. I was to experience gnawing black hunger relieved only by the occasional fruit or a sausage or a coffee from a stall where the bus drivers used to go, I became so utterly depressed, I no longer wanted to go on, end quote. But things would indeed get worse when around one year of age, it became apparent that Gogo had polio. Gabby Picabia came to her friend, Elsa's aid, and suggested that she leave New York and come to Paris to have Gogo treated by a French doctor. And this doctor ended up providing the treatments necessary to reverse the damage that polio had done to Gogo's legs. But this process actually took years, during which time he and his family cared for Gogo as if she were a child of their own. So now in Paris, Elsa was scrambling to figure out a means of support for herself and a way to pay, you know, Gogo's mounting medical bills. And through her artist friends in New York, she expanded her circle of friends to the Parisian avant-garde now. So this counts artists... Pablo Picasso, Jean Cocteau, and interior designer Jean-Michel Franck amongst her circle. It would be none other than Paul Poiré who would play a role in her becoming a fashion designer. So apparently he really liked the struggling Elsa so much that he would dress her for free and enthusiastically encourage her to become a fashion designer. And, you know, this is just when we thought we knew so much about Paré, Cass, <laughs> because when we first began working on this episode some time ago, I, for one, didn't have any recollection of this connection between Paré and Scaparelli. You know, it, it does make sense, though, because he did this quite often. He was always helping out young and up-and-coming talents, whether they be artists or fellow fashion designers. And he was exceptionally generous in this regard. So it makes sense that if he saw something special in Scap, that he would want to kind of like develop and help foster that. Yeah. And so Scaparelli finally took Paré's advice at the age of 37, starting with some highly unusual sweaters. And we will learn more about that after a break from our sponsors. So back to those sweaters, dress listeners, they were quite special and also a tad unusual. Yeah, so after a year or so of doing some other work for Paris fashion houses, Scaparelli struck out on her own, and this was in January of 1927. And success actually came fairly quickly, thanks in part to these whimsical knitwear designs that she was inventing. She liked to say she invented clothes rather than designing them, which we absolutely love. And these sweaters mm -hmm. came about after she bumped into an American friend wearing a sweater that used this unusual knitting technique, which created an effect that looked a bit like a tweed. And Scap's friend put her in touch with the Armenian women who were responsible for this hand-knitted sweater. Yeah, and the ensuing collaboration between Scaparelli and a group of Armenian knitters led by Arosag Mkalian resulted in one of her most famous designs, the Bonat sweater, which featured a trompe scarf and bow knitted into the neckline of the sweaters. And yes, of course, we're going to put up an image of it on our Instagram feed, dress listeners. That is, of course, at dressed underscore podcast. But Cass, I think we should probably define this term trompe for any of our listeners who might not be familiar with it. Yeah, it's really an art history term used to refer to when painters will create this sort of visual illusion. It literally means to trick the eye. And usually this means to create the illusion of something being three-dimensional when it's actually painted on a 2D surface. But in Scaparelli's case, it was being knit into the surface of the sweater instead of being painted on the surface. And it was not only ladies of the Parisian fashion circles who responded to these somewhat surreal sweaters. Women all over the world went completely gaga for them. And that actually holds true for my co-host because 
Cass, if I am not mistaken, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your scap sweater that you wear from time to time? (laughs) Yes, I actually have one of these scap sweaters on a t-shirt that I printed. (laughs) Not the actual sweater itself. You printed a picture of the sweater and then put it on a (laughs) t-shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of my surrealist pun. I call this my, this is not a sweater t-shirt. So if you know that famous Magritte (laughs) painting, this is not a pipe, that's what I call my t-shirt. But I love it. Absolutely. And it's probably the closest I'm ever going to get to owning um, something from Scaparelli. Well, I just actually saw that painting in person last week because I was at LACMA, which is where it lives, Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And I was there seeing the Alexander McQueen exhibition that they have up right now, which we're going to be covering in a few weeks, I think. Yep. More on that soon. Back to SCAP. Let us stress that these Trompe sweaters, again, were wildly successful. They really made a name for her. American manufacturers and department stores were knocking them off, copying them left and right. And it wasn't only her bow knot sweater, but she also made other trompe l'oeil designs. Like one of them, for instance, had a belt knitted at the waist of the sweater. So it looked like the sweater was belted. She also used this technique to make other types of knitted goods like gloves and hats. And one of my all-time favorites are a pair of knit gloves that have colored fingernails that look like they have a wearing nail polish. And she also adapted this design of these gloves with fingernails, realizing them in suede and also snakeskin. So this is kind of a Scaparelli staple design. But Scaparelli claimed that she really didn't mind that she was being widely copied. It was her feeling that when people stopped knocking off her work or licensing her brand's name, um, that it would mean that she was no longer relevant. And her reaction is pretty refreshing, actually, in the history of fashion, because there are a lot of fashion designers who spent a ton of time and energy trying to stop copyists, like one Paul Poiret. <laughs> hmm And Claire McArdle. Yes. Also, within the first year, Scap's fledgling business had done so well that she was actually able to expand her operations across the board, thanks in part to taking on a financial backer. She moved her business out of her tiny apartment into proper workrooms on the Rue de la Paix. She also expanded her offerings to include swim and beachwear. So she first made her name doing sportswear in general. And in fact, the sign outside her business read Scaparelli. Pour le sport. She dressed many, many, many vanguard sportswomen of the early 20th century because of this, oftentimes for their individual sporting activities, including famous female golf and tennis champions and aviatrixes Amelia Earhart and Amy Mollison. And for Mollison, she actually created an entire capsule wardrobe for one of her around-the-world journeys, which is very cool. And we do talk about that a little bit on our episode with Catherine Dorney on the intersection of fashion and flight. Yeah, and actually also check out our Rue de la Paix episode because on that tour, we take a stop at Alsa Scaparelli's Rue de la Paix shop. Mm-hmm. So because these women had specific needs, and I'm talking about these sportswomen, specific needs for ease of movement, for many of them, Scaparelli created divided skirts that were basically culottes. And some listeners may remember in our episode on Elizabeth Hawes, we spoke about how this was really considered shocking even in the 1930s. So April, do you get it? Shocking. <laughs> Yeah. Do you remember back in the day when I used to declare that puns were not allowed on the show? Yes, you would charge me in fashion history items for every pun I made, but I just can't (laughs) help it. I still love them so much. (laughs) I've kind of gotten over it. It's okay. (laughs) So for any of you who are just learning about Scaparelli, this little pun that we were talking about, shocking. Shocking was actually the name of a riotous shade of pink that became her signature color. She called it Shocking Pink. And it was also the name of one of her, what is probably her most famous perfume, which she named Shocking. Right. And we're going to get to that in a bit. But back to these culottes that she was making, because they were absolute fodder for the press. And when Scaparelli wore a pair to London for a buying trip in 1931, she caused an uproar in the British press. This was sensationalism at its best. How dare women attempt to dress like men in public, even for sport, let alone shopping. This was highly controversial. But in classic contradictory fashion, the following year at a lecture she gave to the Fashion Group International in New 
New York, Scaparelli specifically stated that she disapproved of women wearing trousers on the streets. Culottes, apparently yes, but trousers, no. I mean, I don't know. Both are bifurcated garments. Perhaps the wide culotte provided the illusion of being a skirt in her mind. Not entirely sure where that come from, but. Yeah, I've always been a little bit confused by that statement too. So maybe these are subtle differences to us now that back then were considered much more distinct and pronounced, but we've already established Elsa even considered herself an enigma to herself. So, you know, that (laughs) contradiction is something that seems to be consistent, question mark. Very much part of her nature. (laughs) (laughs) But thanks to the success of her sportswear, Scaparelli quickly developed a reputation for being one of Paris's most cutting-edge designers. Manufacturers and department stores from all over the world clamored to partner with her, and this ended up becoming a huge part of her business model. In our collection at FIT, we have so, so many of her original sketches documenting the licensing of her designs in the United States. So from the very start of her career until the tail end, she was licensing the rights to copy her designs. And these types of deals were especially important in seeing her business through the financial crisis of the Great Depression. And one of the reasons people at the time loved her work was due to the fact that it was completely and utterly unique. No one else was making fashion that even came close to the boldness of some of Scaparelli's creations. I mean, Yves Saint Laurent once said of her, Madame Scaparelli trampled down everything that was commonplace. She cheated and tricked by inventing. Yeah, her designs were clearly rooted in that very specific moment of modernity, that moment of art and technology. And former editor of Vogue, Bettina Ballard, called Scaparelli, quote, the most talked about couturier, the most indicative of her times, end quote. So, as Scaparelli expanded her lines to encompass all types of women's wear in the 1930s, so we're talking suiting, day dresses, evening wear, outerwear, accessories, hats, etc. She incorporated the latest developments in textile science. She often used fabrics that no other couturiers would dream of using, including an early adoption of synthetics. So she used weird crinkly crepes that were reminiscent of tree bark. She used thick quilted rayons that she had custom produced. And she used rotafane, which is a clear brittle plastic, which was touted as the closest thing to glass. And of course, we have already done an episode on that topic as well. So you can check that out. It was with Claire Sorrow, and I think it's called Cellophane Fashions. Yeah, and I don't know if you agree with me or not, April, but I don't think any designers really achieved this kind of creative use of like blend of fashion, science, and technology since Scaparelli, except Iris Van Herpen, maybe, I would say, is is the most modern designer to kind of take on this unique intermixing, but she really was incredibly, incredibly forward-thinking and innovative at this time. She was never afraid to push well into the territory of the bizarre, and her color theory was brazen. The influence of art movements of the era like Dada and Surrealism are explicit. Her close friends with the who's who of the modern art world parlayed their influence into the clothing she created. Or or as she would say, invented. (laughs) Right, yes, invented. And that includes, of course, Salvador Dali, who was one of her most notable collaborators during the 1930s. Their admiration for each other's work was clearly mutual. Dali spoke in interviews about Scalfarelli's rightful place in the Parisian avant-garde and his desire to collaborate with her. And the resulting works are some of Scalfarelli's most iconic pieces and some of the most iconic pieces in the history of fashion, hands down. I I don't even know where to start with some of these. There are many of them. Cass, do you have a favorite of a Scaparelli-Dali collaboration? Oh my gosh, talk about hard to pick. There's so many. I love so many pieces. I have to say, I really, really enjoy the surrealist subtlety of the bureau or the chest of drawers suit. The jacket has appliques down the front that gives the suggestion of drawers and a bureau. So creative, so innovative, and just so fun and playful. Mm -hmm. And that piece was actually based on one of Dali's paintings, which was called Anthropomorphic Cabinet from 1936. We'll try to 
post an image of both of them side by side on our Instagram if we can figure out that dimensional quality. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> the, doing the fashion with the painting, or, or maybe it'll be a multi-slide post, but we'll put it up. One of my favorite Dali and Scap collaborations is also based on a painting. It is a dress from the summer 1938 collection. The dress is sleeveless. It's a narrow column that kind of skims the body's curves. And it, the hem pulls out into the floor. And it's made up of a printed silk crepe, which was once a pale blue. But apparently in museum collections now, it has the, the dye has kind of faded to a, a white shade. And the print motif is another trompe l'oeil design that is supposed to convey tears into the skin that reveal a wine-colored flesh below the rip in the skin. And remnants of the skin linger, like kind of like in the print, like like sh- shreds in pink. And the overall effect in, in terms of the dress is far less gruesome than it sounds. There's a sort of graphic subtlety to it. It's more of a pattern than it is like a, a violent shredding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really actually quite beautiful. And I mean, again, so forward thinking because we have people like, you know, Jeremy Scott and Moschino doing these sorts of playful designs today. But like for the 1930s to have to send out like an haute couture, like a fleshed torn dress. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> and this print was actually based on this shredded gown worn by one of the figures in Dolly's painting, three young surrealist women holding in their arms the skins of an orchestra. It is part <laughs> of a trio of related paintings from 1936. And Scaparelli herself actually owned one of the other two. And her painting is called Necrophiliac Springtime. Yes. It is. Um, Wow. Uh, Despite the perhaps somewhat distressing title of the painting that Scaff owned by Dali, the subject matter of these two works are comparatively tame. They were set in Dali's signature kind of like deserted and foreboding landscapes. And the figures wear long clinging gowns that sweep the ground. And their heads are entirely replaced by ovoids of small, bright flowers. So, you know, I see what you were saying about her planting the seeds in her face as a child and why, you know, perhaps the strange and fantastic nature of surrealist art would appeal to her for this very reason. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are other textile collaborations between the two, Dali and Scap. Another one was a lobster print adapted from a drawing by Dali that Scaparelli used for beachwear and also an organza evening gown. And one such example of the organza evening gown was owned by the Duchess of Windsor, the former Wallace Simpson, and another was owned by socialite and fashion icon Daisy Fellows. And both of these women were dedicated Scaparelli clients. Yeah, and again, one of those, you know, most iconic dresses in fashion history, super famous dress. Um, Hopefully we'll post a picture of it on our Instagram. Let's see what else is there. There's the hat that was, of course, an oversized high heel worn upside down on the head. And that was something that Scaparelli and Dolly created for the winter collection later that same year. And of course, we cannot forget the skeleton dress of 1938, a long-sleeved floor-length silky black silk number where she used punto which is kind of like a stuffed quilted technique. Um, And she used trapunto to create the raised surfaces on the dress, which trace the wearer's skeleton. So I don't want to make her work seem scary all of a sudden because it really (laughs) wasn't. Her clothes are actually quite chic. And many punk designers of the 1970s and 1980s, including Xander Rhodes, have cited Scaparelli's aesthetic as a sort of precursor necessary to the development of punk style. Yeah, she was taking risks and she was super bold and creative. And maybe her collaborations, April, with her friend Jean Cocteau were slightly less grim. His sinuous surrealist line drawings were adapted into embroidery motifs that she used on her clothing. And Scaparelli used embroidery and beading to spectacular effect. And she had a long-standing partnership with the legendary couture embroiderer Lesage. And Lesage still carries on this grand tradition for many couture houses today. And when we come back from the sponsor break, we're going to talk about some of the charming themed collections that SCAP is famous for. Some of them are complete magic. Welcome back, dress listeners. Beginning in 1935, Scaparelli began conceiving her collections thematically, something that we may think of as commonplace now in couture, but it really wasn't at the time. And this legacy of her thinking lives on in the way that some of the 21st century's fashion's greatest minds conceptualize their collections. The late, great 
Lee McQueen comes to mind specifically. Yeah, and Scaparelli had reached yet another milestone in 1935, and that's when she relocated to 21 Place Vendôme. Her new location was decorated by her friend Jean-Michel Franck, who also did her private residences for her. If we have any hardcore early modernist design enthusiasts out there, (laughs) you probably just got excited. (laughs) Because Franck is considered an icon of Art Deco design. And I love this story, Cass. Once Coco Chanel went to a dinner party at Scaparelli's and apparently left disgusted with the starkness of Franck's ultra-modern interior and furniture. Apparently it was simply too austere for Chanel. But as, as we have discussed on the show before, Scab and Chanel were not friends at all. No, they were not friends. They actually very much disliked each other. (laughs) Chanel once famously referred to Scaparelli as, quote, that Italian artist who's making clothes. She did not mean that as a compliment. Mm -mm. It's definitely the 1930s version of throwing shade. And, And not to mention that there was a whole other incident at a party one night where Chanel danced Scaparelli into a candelabra, kind of like trying to light her on fire. Yes, I mean, she did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We digress. Back to these thematic collections. So the theme of the 1935 collection was Stop, Look, Listen. And Scaparelli conceived it as a kind of moment to reflect on the successes of the Scaparelli, House of Scaparelli to date. And an enduring creation from this collection was her newspaper print textile, which was a riff on the paper collage pieces that Dada artists were fond of creating. So in this cheeky wink of self-congratulations, Scaparelli created a print that was a haphazard juxtaposition of her actual press clippings from newspapers around the world. So they were in English, German, Swedish, French. She had these printed on both cotton and silk, and the print would become a signature of the house used for years to come, particularly the goods she offered in her ready-to-wear boutique, The Scap Shop, which she had first opened on the premises of her couture house in 1932. I'm going to say it again. I'm launching it out into the world. One day, somebody's going to get back to me, and they're going to be like, April, we have one of these original newspaper print pieces from the 1930s. (laughs) Would you like to buy it? And I will say yes. So if anyone has one, you know where to find me. She also made handbags out of these newspaper print textiles. She made men's lounge pajamas, blouses, hats, all sorts of things. And just as a side note here, this tradition of making these newspaper prints has continued on. Other designers have kind of picked up this mantle and playfully followed suit, uh, creating their own newspaper print textiles. John Galliano has done it, and also Demna Javala for the House of Balenciaga. And, I mean, when will Daniel Roseberry be doing his newspaper print collection? Perhaps that's coming up soon. I think they have, I think they have played with the newspaper print already oh. in the past. Yeah, yeah. But I'd like to see more. Yeah, for sure. So at the House of Scaparelli, amusing prints like the newspaper print became a signature of the house. And one of my favorite collections of hers, hands down, is the summer 1938 collection that had a circus theme. And one of the prints created for this collection featured carousels and children riding the carousel animals, rabbits, steers, swans, horses, an occasional choo-choo train, all seemingly scribbled onto the surface of silk. Buttons in this collection might be circus horses. There were handbags shaped like balloons. Um, Scaparelli herself called it her most riotous, swaggering collection in her autobiography. And Cass, I don't know if you know this, but the two dresses that we discussed just a moment ago that she did with Dali, the, the flesh tear dress and also the skeleton dress, these were also from this particular circus collection. Oh. And the skeleton dress is believed to have been inspired by so-called sideshow freaks. So maybe that dress makes a little bit more sense now within that context. It does, it does. And I was trying to find the reference that I had read at one point because apparently she, I remember reading something about how fun and whimsical this actual presentation of this collection was. I couldn't find the actual source. So dress listeners, if you know what it is, please send it on because apparently the, the actual way she presented this was also super, super fun. So it was once said that Scaparelli, quote, changed the outline of fashion from soft to hard, from vague to definite. And when you learn the backstories behind some of her clothing, her creations are automatically so much richer. And this is obviously something that would have been picked up a little bit more directly at the time when they were launched. 
And, and it's around this time in the late 30s that she was kind of killing it in terms of design because in 1938, she followed up with two more of these rather dramatic themed collections. For fall 1938, she looked to ancient mythology for her pagan collection where nature reigned supreme. Her dresses were adorned with abundant flora and leaves and flowers cascade down their fronts. She used crinkly tree bark textiles, the ones I referenced earlier in this collection. And she even used three-dimensional insects. They make an appearance in the jewelry that she created for this collection. Which are, again, so cool. And the natural world continued to be her inspiration for her next collection for winter 38. Stars, the cosmos, and astrological symbolism collide in this collection. Uh, This is probably actually one of the most coveted of all of her collections today. A single embroidered and sequined jacket from Scaparelli's Zodiac collection can command six figures at auction in the current market. So no small feat for a piece of clothing. (laughs) And really, there's a reason why when you see these pieces in person, she really hit the high point of her work with this embroidery collaboration with Lesage within this collection. And some of the pieces are this tour de force of craftsmanship. The embellishment of a single jacket could take up to 300 hours to complete. So, you know, I also have a little known factoid about the Zodiac collection cast. Do you want to hear? Yes. You do not even have to ask. Tell me everything. (laughs) Well, ever since she was a child, Caparelli had three moles on one of her cheeks. And her uncle, the one who was the astronomer, called her the moles on her cheeks the Big Dipper. So you will frequently see references throughout her career in the graphic design of the House of Caparelli or her actual clothing to the Big Dipper or stars in general. So it wasn't just this one collection. It was an ongoing family joke. (laughs) (laughs) So family actually was important to her after all. Mm -hmm, For sure. Lesage Embroidery makes another stunning appearance in her fall 1939 collection, which is known as her music collection. Shiny golden bells and musical instruments appear on dresses and gloves, and fully functioning music boxes were actually hidden, tucked away in hats and belts. And there is a really great press photo of Gogo, who was 19 when this collection was launched, wearing one of these evening gowns embellished with oversized music scores and accessorized with one of these little music box belts. So while it was the fall 1939 collection, it was actually presented in April for the following season. And I want to point this out for a very specific reason. Do you want to guess what that was, Cass? Yes. So, of course, World War II, 1939, the year of the outbreak of World War II, not a great time for Paris, not a great time for anyone, a truly horrific time for many. A war between France and Germany was officially declared in September of that year. Mm-hmm. And when this happened, Scap began to prepare for the inevitable. She slashed her staff of 600 to 150 and began creating clothing with the exigencies of war in mind creating garments with oversized pockets, which eliminated the need for handbags, and even practical warm jumpsuits, which were editorialized at the time as being perfect in the event of an air raid if you had to go to the shelter. Many of our other fellow French couturiers were like-minded, creating fur-lined shelter boots, hats that incorporated small flashlights, and even ensembles that had glow-in-the-dark buttons to light your way. In a radio interview in the United States that same year, Scaparelli said, quote, our best efforts went into those clothes. It was funny the way we had to cut corners. There was not much we could depend on. That is why in my collection, you will find pockets not only taking the place of handbags, which are clumsy when one is already burdened with a gas mask, but also adding the finishing touch to models, which had to be simple. Except when we dine privately, our clothes must meet all the strange demands opposed upon us as life is in a country at war, end quote. Paris would fall to occupying Nazi forces in June of 1940, while a portion of France remained under French rule known as the Vichy government. But when this happened, Scaparelli left for the United States, where she had already signed a contract six months previous. She had committed to a 30-date lecture tour. And despite the radical shift in circumstances, she did keep her obligation. And this decision was aided, I'm sure, by the fact that Gogo was already living in the United States at this time. 
And the tour was organized by the American media company CBS and it was a smashing success, although her platform, that Parisian couture reign supreme, did not always sit well with the American fashion professionals in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> and following the tour, she made the decision to return to Paris to continue to oversee her business. But this was brief. After she came under scrutiny by the Nazis and the French, her Italian heritage made her suspicious in the eyes of some, despite the fact that she was a French citizen and had been so for nearly a decade. And that's, of course, because the Italy was on the side of the Nazis during World War II. Mm-hmm. So back to the U.S. and go-go, Scap went for the next four years. Despite the absence of its namesake, the House of Scaparelli did remain open in Paris underneath the direction of Irene Denat and the head tailor René, who kept the house afloat despite Nazi restrictions and shortages of materials due to rationing. Scaparelli mainly spent her time in America during the war volunteering and coordinating charitable relief efforts for France, organizing concerts, lectures, art exhibitions of French culture, One of her endeavors stands out from the rest, and that was the role she played in organizing the exhibition, The First Papers of Surrealism, which she worked on alongside artists Marcel Duchamp and André Breton in New York in 1942. Well, she had many offers from the American fashion industry during these four years. In her autobiography, Scap states that the only clothes that she made during this time were for her friend's dog. And as a sidebar, Marissa Berenson's written about her grandmother's obsession with dogs and his fellow dog owners, April, of course, we can appreciate this. If only our pups could dress in custom Scaparelli. <laughs> we could have matching outfits. I know. <laughs> dog clothes would certainly not be the last clothes Scaparelli would, quote unquote, invent. She returned to Paris in July of 1945 to find her couture house not only still in operation, but actually making a profit. During the years of the war, her prior customer base had waned, but new Scaparelli clients came in the form of wives and girlfriends of Nazi officers and French women who found themselves newly rich by supplying foodstuffs like butter, eggs, and cheese to the black market. And that may feel like a red flag to a lot of people, so we should probably stop and contextualize this a bit. You know, a bit more explanations probably needed on why she had Nazi clients. This by no means means that she was a Nazi sympathizer or collaborator. I mean, during the occupation, there was actually a Nazi-led effort to move the haute couture industry to Germany. Like, just pick everyone up and move it all over there. And French fashion designers battle to keep the haute couture industry in France, which was responsible for providing a significant portion of the country's gross domestic product. To keep not only the fashion industry, but France itself afloat, this meant catering to Nazi clients who held the reins of French couture in a stranglehold for their duration of the occupation. And I mean, not to mention that if you did not go along with the Nazis, you would be killed or sent to a concentration camp. So she really had no choice. It was kind of the norm for the fashion industry at that time. They were just trying to survive. So they're kind of going with the flow. That being said, the warriors were very difficult. Just about everything, including food, was rationed as the Germans directed a good portion of France's resources elsewhere in order to support their war effort. And when Scaparelli returned to Paris a year after the occupation had ended, this rationing still included textiles and many of the supplies necessary in the creation of a collection. The governing body of haute couture, the Chambre Syndicale, actually had a say in how much fabric each couture house was allotted and how many new designs they could produce for each season. Yeah, and actually, I just want to make a small note because we didn't really get to talk about it in our interview with Justine Picardy, but on her new book about Miss Dior, she talks a lot about the French fashion houses during World War II. So if you want to learn more about that and learn about the French fashion designers that were actually Nazi sympathizers, go ahead and read that book. So about the collections that Scaparelli produced immediately upon her return, Scaparelli says in her autobiography, quote, I fell into step with what had happened in between, but with myself in 1940 end quote. And she hadn't exactly kept up with the times. So perhaps in an attempt to rectify this, a young whippersnapper of a design assistant that some of you may have heard of, Pierre Cardin, joined the team in 1945. But this was very brief-lived. 
Another famous name would join the House of Scaparelli and have a much longer tenure, Hubert de Givenchy. In 1947, 20-year-old Givenchy was placed in charge of the ready-to-wear boutique, the Scap Shop, which he successfully led until 1951 when he left to establish his own couture house. And Cass, as we know, Scap was quite dismayed by his departure. Apparently, she was heartbroken. She was really upset, actually. (laughs) By 1949, Scaparelli had reasserted her mastery, quote-unquote, according to Newsweek, who did an article on the couturier. And of particular note were some of the sharply tailored suits from this period. Scap had long been known for her suits, which many a fashion editor considered the backbone of their wardrobe. Vogue editor Bettina Ballard, for instance, notes in her memoir that, quote, in the 30s, it was a badge of being well-dressed to wear a Scaparelli suit. There are still many women who yearn for the confidence her clothes gave them. Scaparelli customers did not have to worry as to whether she was beautiful or not. She was a type. She was noticed wherever she went, protected by an armor of amusing conversation-making smartness. Her clothes belonged to Scaparelli more than they belonged to her. It was like borrowing someone else's chic along with it, their assurance, end quote. And this really brings up this crucial point, Cass. You know, Scap felt that being beautiful was not a requirement of being elegant. In fact, she stated that it was often the most unattractive women that were truly the most chic because they had to work so much harder to establish a personal style which suited them and highlighted their best assets. In 1954, saw the publication of Scaparelli's autobiography that we keep referencing, check it out, um, Shocking Life. This would also be the year of her final collection. The overall nature of the haute couture industry at this time was evolving, and the House of Scaparelli had never quite regained the cachet it had enjoyed during the pre-World War II era, and an attempt to streamline the business was unsuccessful. And so, unfortunately, in December 1954, the couture house sadly filed for bankruptcy. But the Scaparelli name would live on in the form of the many licensing deals she put in place throughout her career, and also in the form of her very successful perfume and cosmetics company, which had been organized as a separate business entity. The revenues from the cosmetics and fragrance lines would continue to support Elsa and her fine lifestyle for the next two decades. On November 13th, 1973, Elsa Scaparelli passed away in her sleep at the age of 83 at her beloved home in Paris. Perhaps a fitting epithet, once again in the words of Bettina Ballard, quote, to be shocking was a snobism of the moment, and she was a leader in this art. Another epithet in the career of Elsa Scaparelli came in 2007 when Diego Della Valle, owner of several other fashion brands, including Todd's and Roger Vivier, acquired the Scaparelli brand in 2007. Officially relaunched in 2012 with a collection by Christian Lacroix, the House of Scaparelli regained its official designation as a purveyor of haute couture in 2017 and is now headed by artistic director Daniel Roseberry. The Scaparelli salons are, of course, located in one of the couture house's original premises at 21 Place Vendôme. Which we were so lucky enough to experience last summer when we were in Paris. Cast. So cool. Thank you again to all at Scaparelli who made that visit possible. I'm sure we will be back one day in one quote unquote fashion or another. Content. In the meantime, <laughs> dress listeners, that does it for us today. May you consider interjecting something a little shocking into your ensemble next time you get dressed. And remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com or you can DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast where we are going to be posting fabulous images all week of Scaparelli's wonderful fashions from history. And thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. More Dress coming your way soon. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.